21. We're going to read down through verse 18. I want to read first the scripture today, and then I want us to spend some time reflecting upon it. This is not a typical text that we would turn to at Advent season. Typically, you turn to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapters 1 through 3 or spend some time in Isaiah, perhaps, but there are some profound thoughts in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he took on human flesh and became a man. And so we're going to take the next three weeks and reflect upon these truths that are here today, and today specifically we'll focus on verses 1 through 5. But I want to read the whole section to set us up for what's coming, and we'll spend some time reflecting upon what God has for us here. So as I've said to you before, probably the most important thing that we will do all day is just read God's Word. So let's just read it together and may God bless to us His gracious Word. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him, the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. May God bless to us through His Spirit the reading of His Word. When our church began, we spent the first couple years or so going through the Gospel of John. I remember sitting at a conference just a few months before we officially started public services here. I was intending to teach through Ephesians when we first began the church because there's a lot about the church in Ephesians and how we respond to God. But as I listened to a really well-known evangelical pastor in that conference, <clears throat> a question was posed to him. If you were to do things all over, how would, you, how would you do them? And he said, if I were to start a church today, I would start in the Gospel of John and I would park there for a long time And we would reflect upon who Christ is and what he means for us. And so there in that moment, I changed my mind. And we spent the first couple of years here in our church going through the Gospel of John. Because at the very beginning, 
I felt like it was incredibly important for us to be grounded in the central nature of our faith, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God, and He has given Himself for us. The question is posed a lot in theological circles for people who think about such things, and all of us should be thinking about such things. What is the Bible ultimately about? And I guess we could sum it up by saying the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. From beginning to end, the Bible is about Jesus. John, in the beginning of his gospel here, in the first 18 verses, really clarifies that. In some ways, he sums up the entire Bible in these 18 verses. There's probably nowhere else in Scripture where there is as much truth as densely packed as there is here in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We could expand our answer to the question about what the Bible is about by saying this. The Bible is about how Jesus rescues people from darkness. And John wrote his gospel to clarify that, how we can pass from darkness to light, from from death to life, how we can pass from rebellion to sonship. Before John tells the story of Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry till the end, whenever he is crucified and resurrected and goes back to be with the Father, he clarifies in these first 18 verses what he's really going to talk about. And here at the very beginning where we are today, he clarifies the subject that he is going to talk about. And though the manger isn't mentioned here and wise men and shepherds and stars and even Jesus' parents or his genealogy, his family tree, John is careful to clarify that Jesus became incarnate. And though he doesn't necessarily talk about his infancy or childhood, in very profound ways, in broad strokes, John wants to make it very clear that Jesus became a man. In fact, that was his human name, but before he had a human name, before he ever took on flesh, he existed from the foundation of the world and eternally before that in ways that Matthew and Luke do not cover in their narration of Jesus' birth. John goes even further back. John clarifies who this person was before he ever became a human person. He was the first person, so to speak. He is part of the Godhead. He is the second person of the Godhead who has eternally existed as three people. Now, I just said something in that sentence that should blow your mind, that there is a being who has existed for all of eternity who had no beginning, and that being exists in three persons. And if it's possible, the organ which we call our brains would sweat trying to figure out that. That is profound and mysterious and somehow beyond ultimate human comprehension. We can conceive of it in some sense, but we cannot fully comprehend it. And any analogy and any illustration that we try to come up with to explain it and make it make more sense to us All those analogies fail in some way. But John profoundly here, as he speaks of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, goes back beyond 4 B.C. or so, 
before his human parents and explains that this one who became a man eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity of the Godhead. And so today we will talk about, and for the next three weeks we will talk about, the incarnation of the Son of God. This profound mystery that God the Son became a son. That the God of eternity entered into time and space to become a human because He cared about rescuing us, because He cared about our rebellion, because He cared about entering into the darkness to dispel it and to bring light once again. So we'll take our time today in part one and spend our time in John chapter one, verses one through five. The first profound thought that John puts in front of us here in this text is that Jesus is eternally the Son of God and reveals Him, reveals God to humanity. So Jesus is eternally the Son of God and reveals Him to humanity. This is what John is saying ultimately in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. When, When the world began, the Word was already there. Now, how do you explain that? You explain it by saying that somehow there is a God who has existed with no beginning. When our thing began, when our story began, when the drama of humanity began, He was already there because He'd always been there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. That there is this one that John chooses to give a title to that we see in front of us called the Word. Theologians have speculated for centuries now what John meant by that title. It's communicating something. Probably what it's communicating is that God has forever in human history revealed Himself. And when God speaks, things happen, things like creation. God did not go to a celestial Lowe's or Home Depot to create the world that we see around us. He just spoke, and then it came. So when God speaks, creation happens. When God speaks, He reveals Himself to His creation And when God speaks, God saves. And probably that's the ultimate meaning here in this larger text of verses 1 through 18, especially as we consider John's purpose in his gospel. John wants people to know that they can have eternal life. Well, by what means? Because God has spoken the world into existence... And sadly, that world fell into rebellion, into darkness, into alienation and separation from Him. God is going to have to speak if it can be recreated. So to be very simple, God spoke the world into existence by a word. How can that world which fell into rebellion and separation from Him be refashioned and brought back into relationship with Him, God is going to have to speak again. 
So God stamps his image upon his image bearers, humanity, in creation. But because of the fall, that image begins to to devolve and, and tear apart. But that will not be the last word because the Word of God, capital W, comes into the world to recreate, to refashion, to put it back together again, to restore it, to renew it. And it's because of these things that John gives Jesus this title here. Because when God speaks, He creates and reveals and saves, it's a perfect title to give Jesus. Because as Jesus enters into the drama of human fallenness to redeem it and to rescue it, He is once again a word from God. It's in keeping with who He's always been because He has been God's agent of creation. We'll talk about that in a few moments. So Jesus is eternally the Son of God and reveals Him to humanity. John could not, in the original language in which this was written, Greek, John could not have chosen a more emphatic way to assert that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is equal to God the Father. Emphatically here in the original construction, John is saying without reservation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, He Himself is equal equal to God. He is saying, the Word, He is God. That's kind of a way of translating this a little bit more clearly. The Word, He Himself is God. Now later on in this text, if you were to read on, you would find that John talks about the Spirit of God as well. When he speaks of Jesus' baptism, the Father reveals that the Spirit will light upon this person, Jesus, who is the Son of God, therefore demonstrating that there is a trinity. But here in this section, verses 1 through 5, John is clarifying that Jesus himself is emphatically God. There is no doctrine of Christianity that has undergone more battle than this one, that Jesus of Nazareth is both fully human and fully God. The first heresies of the church really argued over whether or not Jesus, the Son of God, was really a human. That somehow it was just imaginary or he was some sort of person that appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. It wasn't until after that that debates really grew over his deity. But it's interesting here in the beginning of John's gospel that he asserts both things. That he is both fully human and fully God. And the question arises, why was that so necessary? Because if John's purpose is to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior and through Him we can receive eternal life, the question must be asked, why is it so necessary that the Son of God take on flesh and that He be both fully human and fully God? We have explored that at length at other times in teaching here. Specifically at Advent we have talked about this, but just to be very brief... Jesus, the Son of God, was also the son of Joseph. And even more clearly, he was the son of Adam. Why was that so necessary? This brings us back to some of the central things we've been talking about in our exposition of the book of Genesis. Where when humanity fell in chapter 3, God shows up on the scene right away. 
to speak words of cursing, but also to speak words of blessing and promise. That a seed of the woman would eventually be born, and the seed of that woman would restore and save humanity. If humanity was to be saved according to God's promise, according to His design, there would have to be a son of the woman who would arise, who would set things right. This is because the first man, Adam, failed to keep covenant with God. And if humanity was to be brought back into perfect fellowship with God, because God could not just excuse their sins, because He would violate His holiness, He would violate His righteousness and justice. If humanity was to be brought once again back to God through redemption, through rescue, through adoption, then one would have to come from them. But he could not be exactly like them. Now, he would be human just like them, but he could not be exactly like them because all of them were born into sin. There would have to be one born who was not full of sin, who did not have a sinful nature. And God showed this with powerful signs by having him be born of a virgin. Jesus' conception was not a normal conception. Jesus' conception, as we learn in the Gospels, came by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was born as a real man, but without corruption. He was a second Adam, if you will. He was the only human that had ever been born after Adam and Eve who was not born with corrupted human nature. And therefore, humanity got a second chance. So when Jesus came into the world, He was keeping God's Word from Genesis chapter 3 that there would be one who would be born of the woman eventually who would set things right. So it makes sense here that He's called the Word because God kept His Word and He sent the Word to bring His promises of redemption. But He wasn't like us in another respect because He was fully God. Yes, fully human, but fully God, not like us in that sense either. And therefore, because He was eternal, because He was infinite, because He was sinless, because He could not sin, though temptation was very real to Him, He alone could rescue us. This was God's plan. So from before the foundation of the world, God the Trinity came up with a plan whereby humanity could be rescued. And that rescue could only be enacted. It could only be accomplished if one, fully God and fully human, would come and rescue all the humans who could not rescue themselves, who frankly did not want rescue. And so John is saying a whole lot in this verse. The second thing that we see in this text in verses 2 through 4 is that God created the world through Jesus and all human life exists and is sustained through Him. You're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Moses says to us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In John chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, John says, He, this word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Therefore, Jesus has always been God's agent of creation, and Jesus brings light to this world. We've spent a lot of time on this in the past here publicly, but it's interesting as you look in Genesis chapter 1 that somehow there was light before there were any stars. That's kind of crazy. Somehow, the second person of the Trinity, through whom God made all things, caused a light to shine throughout the universe before there were any stars. That's fascinating. There's something theological about that. And at least we can say this. Darkness is sort of a metaphor for deconstruction. Darkness is a metaphor for for non-creation. Darkness is a metaphor for things that are not ordered what does God do when there's no order? What does God do when there's where's decreation? Where does God do whenever things are not right? He, he steps in. And he did it through the person of his son. And through his son, he dispelled darkness. He's always done that. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Proverbs chapter 8. It is highly likely that when John wrote this section, this introduction to his gospel, that he had Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31 in mind. Now, wisdom is being personified here in Proverbs. That is to say that that wisdom, which is a concept, is given human-like characteristics. In verse 22, Solomon says, "...the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old." Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Solomon uses Hebrew poetry here to personify wisdom, but probably in subtle ways he is referring to the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom God makes all things. And as you read John chapter 1, it kind of makes sense then because he is God's agent of creation. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 1. You're probably more familiar with these verses in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 where Paul demonstrates that Jesus made all things and he holds all things together. 
Jesus is the one spoken of here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying here that Jesus is worthy of worship just like God is. And putting that together with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and Proverbs chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 1, they are saying something very profound, that Jesus is God, and Jesus is worthy of our worship and trust. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to put these sections in front of you, and I want you to turn to them, because I want you to be able to turn to them yourself, so that you have a well-developed understanding of who your Savior is, that He is not just one who came to die for you, but He pre-existed. He made you. He is worthy of your worship because He is God, and these texts are profoundly important in our understanding of Him. Beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So why do we talk about this stuff at Advent? Because it's easy for us at Advent just to see Jesus as this little helpless baby in a manger. But John does something in a bit more of a profound way than Matthew or Luke do. He wants us to see that, that Jesus, who really is the son of Mary and the adopted son of Joseph, that he's more than that, that he is the son of God, that he himself eternally is God. That yes, we look to him as the one who rescues us, but we are to look to him as our powerful God. And John's words here in the beginning of his gospel are profoundly important for our faith. The question must be asked, ultimately, what is John trying to say to us in these verses? That ultimately, our salvation could not have been accomplished any other way. That's really basically the point. That when God sent Jesus into this world, He wasn't another one of His creations. That the Trinity had made a pact before the world began where one of their persons, and the Son of God would be the person of the Godhead that would come, that one of them would invade humanity, entering into the darkness, and would overcome it. This helps us make sense of what John begins to hint at in verse 4, when he says that in Him, in the Word, in the Son of God, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John has creation aspects in mind here, but there's redemptive aspects as well, which is why later on in the gospel, John says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Jesus speaking here, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How could Jesus say that? Because he created all life. And it makes perfect sense that he's the only one who can rescue it. You're familiar with John chapter 14, verse 6, as Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says to them, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. I don't just point the way to life, I am life. No one comes to the Father, which is really living, except through me. In John chapter 8, he clarifies that he's not just life, but he's light. So again, he speaks to people saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To dwell with God is to dwell in the light. To dwell apart from God is to dwell in darkness. And Jesus shows that if you will have life, which is to be with God, I have to be the one to bring you the light. I have to be the one to bring you out of the darkness. In John chapter 9, verse 5, he says again, I am the light of the world. Because he always had been. So brothers and sisters, our redemption had to be done in this way. A real son of Adam had to be the one to rescue us. One who would keep all the laws that Adam and all of his progeny, all of his offspring, could not and would not keep. But no normal human could do that. It had to be the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, who would enter into our story, into our darkness, shine His light, and bring life once again. Jesus is eternally the Son of God and reveals Him to humanity. And God created the world through Jesus, and all human life exists and is sustained through Him. And thirdly today, just as at the creation of all things, Jesus will not allow darkness to have the final word. How would you characterize the world ever since the first sin? Our world is full of darkness. Again, darkness being a metaphor for rebellion against God, decreation, where humanity begins to unravel. If God made things all perfectly at the beginning, the fall messed all of that up. The fall was rebellion. The fall was decreation. The fall brought evil into what was once perfectly good. You might think that the Creator would look down at that decreating type world, that, that rebellious world, that world that's running from Him. You might think He would look down and say, I have blessed you with every conceivable blessing, and you turned your back on me. And because I am perfectly righteous, and because I am perfectly just, I will destroy you. Or, at the very least, I will just let you have your own way and implode. But as we've already said today, immediately after the first sin was committed, God came pursuing the first prodigals, cowering in the bushes, trying to hide their own nakedness, compounding sin upon sin. And though words of cursing had to be spoken because of their sin, Words of promise were given. And when John the Apostle wrote John chapter 1, verse 5, he's saying something very profound. That rebellion and darkness, that, that being prodigal-like, that, that would not be the end. 
back in Genesis chapter 3, when God shows up on the scene and speaks words of promise to these fallen rebels who knew better, who had been warned, who had been told the ramifications of what would happen if they broke covenant with God. When we see him doing that, we see the essential nature of why he made the world in the first place. Genesis chapter 3 explains to us why God made the world like this. Though God is not responsible for sin, God cannot sin, and God does not tempt people with sin, God knew the world would end up like this, and He made it anyway. Any architect who draws some blueprints and submits them to city ordinances to be approved, who finds out that there is a fatal flaw in his plans, tears up those blueprints and starts over again. The blueprint of this planet, God knew, told him that the world would fall into rebellion. And yet he went forward with its construction anyway. Knowing what it would cost him to win it back. Knowing what it would take to set it right. Why did he do that? If there had not been sin, would we really understand righteousness? If there's no sin, how can you really understand righteousness? How can you really understand justice where where that sin must be punished? Those aspects of God's character would not be fully understood, but, but even more so, even more so than understanding God's righteousness and His justice, God wanted to help His image bearers, His people, to understand His grace. Because if there had never been sin we would never really understand grace. We would conceive it perhaps. We might see it as a synonym for love or goodness or kindness. But the reality is grace is costly. Wrapped up in the concept of grace is the idea of sacrifice. What would it take to win humanity back? There would have to be a seed of the woman. And though Adam and Eve did not fully understand that, that seed would be the Son of God coming into the world. That is to say, for the fatal flaw of the blueprint of this world to be undone and set right, it would cost God everything. Why did He do that? So that we would understand and worship Him as a gracious God who sacrifices to win back fallen rebels. And if there had not been sin... Grace would only be conceptual, but because of sin and because the Word of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, now we have seen grace. Now we understand it. So Jesus enters into the darkness at the beginning of the world. When there were no stars, He brought light into darkness. And does it not therefore follow logically, that later on, through His redemptive purposes, He would bring light once again. Not because there were no stars, but because all of humanity dwelt in the darkness, willingly because of their rebellion. So really, for all of human history, what has the Son of God been doing? Dispelling darkness, coming into decreation and rebellion, and bringing His light. He did it on the first day, And He did it on the most important day, 
when he was born and eventually in taking on that flesh would die for our sins, becoming our substitute, answering the promises of the word of God in Genesis chapter 3 where a seed of the woman would come, obey all the laws that all of Adam's sons and daughters would not and could not keep. And because he became our substitute, if we will receive his grace, our sins are taken away and we are given his righteousness. What has Jesus been doing for all of human history? Dispelling darkness. We'll talk about this at the end of our teaching time in a couple of weeks. But as you look in the book of Revelation, where we have spent a lot of time in the past, eventually when Jesus comes and sets everything right at his second advent, there'll be no more need for stars because the Lamb will be there and he'll be the light of the entire cosmos. So what is Jesus going to be for all of humanity? What he's always been, light in the midst of darkness. Jesus was a baby, yes, but he was not a helpless baby. Jesus was the Son of God who had made all things, who is remaking all things, and one day will fully remake all things. That is your Savior. Turn with me quickly, if you don't mind, to John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. It's a good chance for us to ground what is perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible in its context. You probably learned John chapter 3, verse 16 when you were a little taught. If for no other reason, if you didn't grow up as a Christian, you saw it behind the goalposts of every American football game. So John chapter 3, 16 is a well-known verse, but let's place it in its context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That sounds good. Believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. But what's the context of that? For God did not send, verse 17, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Whatever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And ultimately that is what John is saying here in this text. Yes, God made the world through Jesus and Jesus' light lightens all creation but he's saying something more than that that because darkness has entered this world once again not because of lack of stars not because of lack of astral bodies but because of sin jesus speaks again and jesus overcomes the darkness so it's interesting that jesus the word will not allow sin darkness to have the final word he steps in and he sets things right. So all of us who have trusted Jesus as our substitute, trusting him to take our sin and to give us his righteousness, sin does not have the final word for us. If you're worshiping here with us today, and you have not yet trusted Jesus as your substitute, if you have not yet turned from the darkness to light, I call you to that today, brother or sister. Turn to him in faith. 
He will take your sin and he will give you his light and he will overcome your darkness. But even after we are rescued from the power of darkness, we still sometimes dwell in it. And though darkness does not have power over us, we often give in to it. We often step over into it, away from the light. Because Jesus has always been overcoming darkness, He can still do it today. If you find yourself trapped seemingly in sins that are exceedingly difficult to overcome, Jesus is your only hope. If darkness is invading your marriage, Jesus is your hope. Young people, if you find it difficult to obey your parents and to obey God, more importantly, Jesus is your hope. When friendships shatter, when the world seems to come undone, Jesus is our hope. Our world has always been bad. Ever since Adam and Eve, it's been really, really bad. And to be very honest with you, it's not any worse now. But because we live in the here and now, we don't live in the 17th or 18th century when there was lots of bad. We live now. We have our own doses of darkness. What's the hope for war-torn Africa? Terrorism, child abuse, abortion, drunkenness, drug abuse, divorce, and a whole lot of other things. What's the answer? Jesus, the light of the world. If John's purpose in his gospel is to show that Jesus is the only one who can give us eternal life, he makes it very clear that Jesus came to be on mission. One of the implications for us as we see this text is that we should join him on that mission because we are bearers of the light. If Jesus was the light of the world and we are joined to him by faith, then we become his representatives. As image bearers who dwelt in the darkness but who have now been brought back into the light, we get to reflect His light once again. We join Him on His mission. In the introduction to John's gospel here in verses 1 through 18, John speaks of two major themes, the identity of the Word of God and the mission of the Word of God. His identity calls us to trust Him exclusively. Because of His mission, we can be rescued. But once we have been rescued because of the Son of God, we join Him on mission. We should, because we have something to say. Your siblings, your parents, your neighbors, your co-workers, if they yet dwell in darkness, they have no hope apart from Jesus. And though He sovereignly is the one who must save them, how will they hear unless you tell them? You know, one of the best ways to worship during this Advent season is to reflect the light, to speak of it. As I stood in the grass outside Paige and Corey's uh, home yesterday and watched them drive up and watched them get that little girl out of their Honda, um, the, the reality of adoption has been with our family for a long time. For a number of years now. Um, but, but to watch them bring this little girl out of that car and to have the, the story of her background, which we don't know all the details of, but we know a good bit, 
It was an overwhelming emotional experience. Most of you know the stories, and I won't go into it in great detail today because that's Paige and Corey's story to tell. And but we can say this, and most of you, again, know the story. There's, there's a lot of darkness in this little girl's life. She's six weeks today. Is that right, Corey? Yeah. Her six weeks of life have already been incredibly hard because of really bad, dark decisions that her parents made before she was ever born. Without love, that little girl probably would have resided in darkness for all of her days. But because of love, because Paige and Corey themselves have been rescued from darkness, they decided to become agents of light. And now a little helpless baby has been brought into a family who will love her and expose her to the light. And her story is a beautiful one of redemption, of light penetrating and overcoming darkness. And brothers and sisters, whether it be through our actions or whether it be through our words of proclaiming the message of Jesus, we are to first of all rest in Jesus exclusively as the one who can dispel our darkness, and we are to worship Him well by entering into the darkness as agents of light and dispel the darkness as well. So I call you today to rest in the one who brings light into the darkness the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who made you and the one who is remaking you. But I call you not just to rest. I call you to action. I call you to proclamation. I call you to redemptive living. And may God take each one of us as image bearers and may he cause his light to shine into a world that is dark but who desperately needs his light. Lord Jesus, now may we rest in your light. May we bear it to this world. May we reflect it with our actions. May we proclaim it with our words. Thank you for entering into our darkness, for not leaving us alone, for setting things right. And may you use us as agents of recreation, not because we can bring grace, but because you will shine your grace Thank you for undoing our darkness. And I pray that you will use us to help others see their darkness undone as well. May we rest in your light. May we reflect it for your glory. We worship you today.